The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. My name is Haig Balian and I'm with Mark Dreyer. He is the China Sports Insider and this is the China Sports Insider Podcast. This week, we'll talk about a proposed new law. New law. This week, we will talk about a proposed new law in China that Mark's going to have to interpret for us. An ID controversy ahead of the World Cup in Qatar. Will the Shanghai Masters become a super tournament? And then sports writer Jonathan White joins us from Hong Kong. Mark, how are you doing? I'm very well. Still, uh, still excited for our uh, recent uh, podcast guest and friend Joe Guanyu, uh, China's F1 star, who finally, finally, hike has some good luck. We talked about this on the show last week, but yeah, finished eighth uh, in Montreal. Um, and uh, very, very drove very, very well. Qualified tenth, first time he'd qualified uh, in the top ten. And just drove really well throughout. Didn't make a mistake. And actually, with uh, Alonso getting bumped, he, he crossed the line in ninth and was uh, Joe Gagnon went up to eighth. So four points, four more points in the bag. He now has a total of five. Again, he's not going to set any, uh, you know, he's not going to challenge for the title. But it so far, it's been, a, I think, a solid debut season for him. And we're just kind of hoping that he can build on that. What was his reaction to that? <laughs> well, well, I... He's really good about sharing the radio clips on his social media. So if you're not following him, follow him on Instagram. He's, he's pretty funny. Um, basically, there was a bleeped out clip uh, when he was celebrating, qualifying, getting into Q3, which basically means, you know, you're in the top 10. And he finished 10th out of 10, but basically, like, you're guaranteed a top 10 start. So he was he's very happy about that. He didn't have to bleep out the, uh, the, the post-race when, when he finished 8th, but I think he was pretty happy. So he's an emotional guy. He clearly has a good relationship with his team. Uh, and, it, and it's fun to see. It's fun to kind of see him sharing those, 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 those clips as well. 
You know, one more, actually, we said this is not on our rundown. I just have one more question about that, though. I mean, for, in ter- for, for us here on this part of the world, this is actually the, the worst in terms of scheduling to watch an F1 race, right? Because it's usually in the afternoons. Did you stay up to watch this? I did. Uh, and I was struggling with it because he'd had like he'd had three DNFs in the past four races. It was a 2 a.m. start China time, uh, the Montreal Grand Prix. And I was... You know, I, I tweeted at one point, you know, when you, you know, when you kind of like in that late night vacuum and no one's really listening, I was like almost tweeting to myself like, hmm, he's currently challenging for, for, for seventh position. He was doing really, really well, but it's 2.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm going to stop. <laughs> so I was like, and then, he, and then he, he, he made the position. I was like, yeah, okay, good decision. I mean, look, I love sports. I watch anything and everything, uh, particularly something like this. So, so um, I was looking for an excuse to stay up. But again... It's like watching Champions League in Asia uh, in midweek or the, the final. It's not easy for those two, 3 a.m. St- starts. I'm dreading, I'm dreading the World Cup, actually, just for this reason. There's a couple of, well, Canada's in the World Cup, as we know, and I can't wait to watch Canada play. But I just, I, I'm not, I don't is do Can- well is at Canada 3 in the World in the Cup, Mike? Canada, yes, Mark. Canada, Canada made it to the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Oh, think, we we, we know this. I think that's the first time I've heard you say that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Listen, this is a huge deal. You're going to hear me say it a lot, uh, especially in the coming months. It's going to be it's going to be fantastic. What else do we have on the uh, Canada Sports Insider podcast? The Canada Sports is well. Do we talk, we could talk about the uh, Stanley Cup Finals, but of course, there's the Canadian team is is not uh, <laughs> playing in the finals this year. <laughs> All right, let's get to our first story, though, Mark. Um, okay, this I, I really need your help for this story, okay. and I'm gonna read I'm gonna read I'm gonna read this entire thing from Xinhua News, which you you sent this to me. And it's it's really short. Um, I think I sort of understand it, but you're, you're gonna have to uh, to uh, interpret this for me. Okay, here's here's what it says: Chinese lawmakers are considering a draft law revision allowing the country to take countermeasures to actions deemed to have undermined its dignity and interests in international sports events. Okay, I was going to read the entire thing, but it sort of keeps on going like that, and I don't want to lose our audience completely. What the hell does this mean? Look, it's it's obviously cryptic, as all Chinese laws um, tend to be. First and foremost, it seems to be part of the the forthcoming draft sports law that we're expecting out later this week, potentially on Friday, which will be after uh, we're recording here. So we might have more to talk. We might have some more, you know, detail to, to discuss on next week's show or the, the next show that we do. But yeah, it, it is it is typically vague. And my first reaction was like, what on earth is this? I mean, I mean, some of the things that it could be referring to that have happened over the years, whenever China's territorial integrity is threatened as, as, as China sees it, it becomes a massive deal. So you've got things like, you know, when Hong Kong played uh, uh, the, the Chinese men's team in, in, in World Cup qualifying a few years ago, and there was booing of the national anthem, and then they kind of criminalized that. It's that sort of stuff. Was, of course, there was a separate law which criminalized the booing of the national anthem. So that's not this. But there's another story we'll talk about this week where, where with the World Cup designation, Taiwan was was sort of you know listed temporarily as a separate country on the on the Qatar World Cup website, and so that kind of became a bit of a story again, mountain out of a molehill, uh, to to be honest. Um, so it's that sort of stuff, you know, where where people are are, are threatening that sort of stuff, um, p- potentially 
flags being waved at, uh, at at sporting events internationally. We've seen the Tibet flag in Germany, for example. We've seen, you know, uh, Taiwan flags at, at different events. We've seen sort of, you know, with the NBA and some, some, some uh, you know, Xinjiang protests, whether it's Ennis Cantor and, and all that sort of stuff. So at the moment, it could be any and every, anything and everything. Potentially, we'll get some more detail, but it, it does seem a, a typically bizarre. I mean, more importantly, how does this relate to Canada being in the World Cup this year? Yeah, nice try. Uh, yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, I mean, we're going to have to watch out for this because, again, like this is something that's really bizarre. You know, obviously, China is a sovereign country, but this is, you know, obviously going to be something that's very controversial. Uh, And one of the things you mentioned, though, was was that uh, Qatar controversy. Now, the World Cup in Qatar is not averse to controversy. Now there is a China angle. What is going on, Mark? So this goes back to uh, about 10 days or so ago. And, uh, you know, everyone has to register for, for a, a Qatar-based uh, identity card. And initially, fans who were potentially coming from Taiwan, and we'll get to how many that might be in a second, um, they were complaining that actually Taiwan wasn't listed as an option. And then it was a bit of back and forth. And then they listed Taiwan as an option. Then uh, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry obviously complained then it was Taiwan province of China. Then it was down back to Chinese Taipei. So we've had about four different options at this point. Um, both sides, are, I think, are quite upset. This has happened before. This happened in 2018 as well uh, for the Russian World Cup. I have to say, look, I totally get the, the, the position on both sides. It's all about the principle here, and both sides feel very, very strongly about it. But let's be honest, Taiwan's not in a World Cup. How many fans from Taiwan are really traveling to Qatar for the World Cup. Maybe, uh, you know, a few dozen, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I just can't imagine there'll be too many people that this really impacts. So to, for, it to, for it to make international headlines is, is a little bit unnecessary, to be honest. There's plenty of other issues that the, that the two sides could be putting their energies into, but um, uh, that's, uh, that's been in the headlines this week. So uh, that is why we're discussing it. We are discussing it. We have discussed it. Now let's move on to our next story. And this actually broke a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It's a tennis story. The ATP is expanding the Shanghai Masters from an eight-day 56-player tournament to a 12-day 96-player tournament in 2023, next year. Bigger prize money, more revenue sharing with players. This sounds fantastic, Mark. Just one issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's, uh, it, it's ambitious is what it is because uh, we don't know if, if tennis is going to be back in China uh, from, from just over a year or so from now. Uh, there's been no indication that COVID-0 is, is moving away anytime soon. Shanghai has obviously uh, had some, some pretty uh, challenging months, to say the least, over the last uh, little while. Uh, hopefully that will be in the distant past by the time we get to, to next year's calendar. But, you know, you can't make these decisions just a week beforehand. And what if there's an outbreak in Shanghai or, or in, the, in the region just beforehand? Like, uh, and, and China still has these, these border restrictions, which, which, frankly, I'm expecting to still be at least there in part. The other issue here is, is you kind of have this extended, it's kind of halfway between a, big tor- uh, between a Masters tournament and a Grand Slam. So it's 10 days. You know, so you've got overlapping schedules. And I totally get... Um, you know, for, for players who are, you know, sometimes you do need to overlap because 
half the half the field is out on the Monday of a tournament or the Tuesday of a tournament, kicking their heels with nothing to do, and so potentially you want to do that. But what happens if if you know the the the, the two tournaments are overlapping and you don't know who's going to be in? One tournament versus another. The promoters can't promote who's going to be in this tournament. So it's not just about Shanghai. If Shanghai is now pulling players away from other tournaments because they can't uh, they can't double up as they used to in the past, that could be an issue. And the other thing is, we we have the the Chinese National Week, and and it's uh, timed to coincide with National Week in October here. But elsewhere, as I understand it, the the semis and the finals are going to be on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. That's just weird. Um, you know, for a big tournament, for an almost like a Grand Slam, uh, like Grand Slam light, if you will, like having having midweek finals and uh, and climaxes to tournaments, that that's an experiment. Look, fair play for them for trying something new, but I'm still fairly skeptical at this stage. There's a lot of the stuff if you go on the ATP's website about One Vision, it's mostly nonsense as far as I'm concerned. A lot of hype, uh, very little substance. I mean, this is all hypothetical, obviously. I mean, just just in terms of overlapping tournaments. But I mean, I guess one solution could be to make the China swing longer, just to have you know the Beijing the Beijing tournament come a bit later on. Right now, I think it it comes like directly after the Masters. At that point, you're then talking about you know you're getting into the political and the reputational risk. I mean, tennis in China with the whole Peng Shui thing obviously has centered on the WTA. The ATP has basically ignored this, and they have not yet faced the backlash, which may still be coming. So for them to kind of double down on China, given COVID, given all the Peng Shui stuff that we've previously discussed on the show, that is incredibly bold and frankly naive. Um, you know, they need to be back in China, getting the Masters back on the calendar before they they thought, think about lengthening it. But you know, we don't make the decisions. So so good luck to them. Uh, but it's uh, it's not going to be plain sailing for for potentially at least two avenues. Okay, so Mark, before we get to Jonathan White, we are going to debut a new segment on the China Sports Insider Podcast, which we are calling for now Tweet of the Week. Now, it's not going to be every week that we have a Tweet of the Week, but this week you do have one. What is it? So Chris Long is a, a, a former, I know him from, uh, from, from my team, the, the, the Philadelphia Eagles, um, big NFL star in his day, you know, got pretty big following uh, and pretty great engagement on social media and on Twitter. And he, he posted this question, which was, which was pretty hilarious. He posted this picture the, uh, the other day and he said, visiting this bridge in 2023 and others, give me some must see bridges. Now, lots of people were basically sending him, you know, Golden Gate Bridge and all, all sort of the famous one. And uh, and some guy chipped in with a picture of the Danyang Kunshan Grand Bridge, uh, of course, in China, the world's longest bridge, he said, 102 miles long. And the picture that is there is basically just this huge long bridge over a massive expanse <laughs> of water. Now, Chris Long basically <laughs> retweeted this with the question, where do you shit? Which <laughs> just made me, made me made me laugh. It's like, and then a lot of people in in the comments were like, "Yeah, so the kids are kind of you know going onto the bridge, and as soon as you get like one mile into the bridge, they're like, Daddy, Daddy, I need to go to the bathroom.'" Uh, and it was just okay. It was a bit of a random China sports connection, but hey, it's a bridge in China, and it's a big NFL player talking about it. It made me laugh. I hope it does uh, uh, <laughs> provide a chuckle to other people too. 
I hope so too. It definitely made me laugh. Now, if you have a suggestion for a tweet of the week, we would love to hear it. So, so hit us up on Twitter. Uh, you can find Mark at Dreyer China, D-R-E-Y-E-R China. And you can find me at Haig Balian. That's H-A-I-G-B-A-L-I-A-N. If you have suggestions for tweet of the week or anything else, we really want to hear from you. All right, let's head over to a place we've never been to on this show, Hong Kong. Jonathan White is a freelance journalist in Hong Kong. That's where he covers sports and other stuff. We caught up with him this week. I mean, Hong Kong definitely seems like it's going through a bit of a purple patch when it comes to sports. There was, um, there was an op-ed in the SCMP um, this week by Ken Chu, who you'll know is, you know, for, for people who don't know, from Mission Hills Complex, it's sort of big golf sports complex both in Hong Kong and also in, in, in Shenzhen and, and, and other places as well, basically saying, you know, how great Hong Kong had done. Now, of course, he's going to take that line, but he did seem to have, sort of have some arguments, you know, qualifying for the Asian Cup, as you said, uh, some great Olympic performances, basically overperforming. If you think about the size of Hong Kong, what is it? Eight million people or so as a, as a basically a, a sporting nation or sport, a separate sporting entity. Um, what are the reasons for this? Do you think like, um, you know, and can can China perhaps learn some lessons from what Hong Kong's done in terms of its investment and and the success it's got from there? Um, it'll be interesting to see if if China can learn lessons from it. Um, I think that would be you know the the million dollar question over time. Um, I think with the Olympics, it was it was a, a confluence of things. You know, it so happens that you do get you know generational talents coming together, and with the likes of Siobhan Hoi and, and, you know, Chung Kar Long, there was a little bit of that. Although he wasn't even potentially the most fancied fencer among them, but the fencing team was seen as doing well and he'd always been pushing, you know, towards the upper end of international competition. But, for, you know, former colleagues have said that they sent their kids to fencing years and years ago. Um, and it just so happens that Hong Kong is a place where fencing and squash, you know, Things that you don't need an awful lot of outdoor room for have, uh, have been popular. So that, it, that's worked out, I think, you know, similar way with Siobhan and the swimming pool. You know, these are facilities that are there. Um, looking at the AFC team, like, they were doing very well when Gary White came in. Um, he lasted until the last day of his probation before deciding to, you know, step down and, and go back into club football. But the Hong Kong football team, the representative team as it is, the men's one, had made some excellent progress under him in three months. Then Mixu Patalainen came along and, you know, the, uh, the circumstances didn't help him because there was protests on the street. Football was called off because of that. Then COVID came and football was called off because of that. And his tenure, like, he didn't really see any football. The new fella, Jorn Anderson's come in and, like, he's shifted the team again. Same group of players, generally, that, you know, the last couple of managers are working with. Hong Kong's a slightly different, you know, international football setup anyway, because a lot of the players traditionally have been naturalised, but they have to do their seven years to get their Hong Kong passport. So it's usually young, local lads and older, you know, former Brazilians who've been jobbing around in the Hong Kong Premier League for seven seasons. Um but he's, you know, he's got a slightly younger team that he's decided on, but still the same players they've been picking from um, and decided you know, to, to try another method, a bit more pressing and things like that. So 
you know, the, the football, to get slightly back on track, the football, it's been the same team. Like, it's not like this is a new generation that have been benefiting from anything else. But the, the, if anything, they've had the worst, the worst time of it because they've been so far away from playing for the most part over a couple of years. Um, but, you know, that's coincided with Kitchi doing the best in the AFC Champions League the first time a Hong Kong team's got to the knockout stage. Hong Kong teams getting into the AFC Cup um, competition, like the uh, the cup one, the club one, um, but it's not come from a great master plan. Like it's not come from years and years of investment. Football's popular here; people play it. Whereas you know, you look at China, that's not the case. Like people are forced into playing football generally. There's no sort of grassroots as such. I know you spoke about it a couple of weeks ago with the youth league coming in. Like it's a move that's come in to sort of set up a grassroots after the the horse has bolted, if you will, on that particular Chinese football generation. Um, so, yeah, Hong Kong sport is having a moment. Is it from investment or any overarching thing? Like, the Sports Institute has certainly helped with individual sports because it's given people the chance to, you know, go full-time. But it's got to be in certain sports. And, you know, the support only extends if they then you know, get a medal or place high enough in international things to, to continue that sport. So I would say it's been more um, coincidence. Like that, that was, that Olympics coming a year later maybe helped some of the people in it. The fact it came with a lot of people having not had international competition for a while. Um, like you look at the, the women's team table tennis medal you know, would they, would they have got that if everyone had been playing week in, week out for a year, or if it was a year sooner? Um, but then, you know, other people who were more fancied, like maybe some of the badminton players, didn't perform at the Olympics. So, yeah, um, to roundabout answer the question, I think it's, it's more luck than judgment. But some of the things that Hong Kong have excelled at, badminton, you know, squash, fencing, they are things that you can play in sort of confined areas and generally, you know, with the exception of fencing, um, they're sort of things that are more accessible to people. You know, I know Hong Kong has equestrian uh, representatives, but, you know, that's, that's an elite sport. Golf is still something of an elite sport because it's, you know, it has to be. But the things that are popular, football, table tennis, ping, um, badminton, you know, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities for people to play them. And, you know, the one good thing about Hong Kong is you do see kids like out and about playing sport. You know, most of the time you're kicking them off a football pitch, but they are on there or they are on the basketball courts. Um, and that isn't always the same in the mainland. So that would be the one lesson I think would be very possible, you know, and almost free to, to uh, implement, which is just get kids out playing sport. But that isn't really the priority in the mainland by and large. Yeah, no, that that's that's really really interesting. Um, let me ask you, like, like, what's it? What's the sporting success doing for the mood of the city? Like, is it, is is it positively affecting morale? You know, you do see sport as this. You know, when when countries go on a good, you know, cup run at the Euros or the World Cup, for example, or although overperform the Olympics, you know, you see it really lifts the mood of the country and. You know, from from a from an, a perspective outside of Hong Kong, all the the international headlines are out. Well, we got the we got the twenty fifth anniversary of the handover, and, and you know, and using the, the the and all the freedoms have disappeared, and and using the the jumbo sinking as some sort of 
you know, uh, <laughs> stretched, <laughs> a convoluted metaphor for you know the 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 the, the uh, ebbing freedoms of, of of the city. You know, what is the sport doing there to Hong Kong? Is is it lifting the people, or is it just kind of like ah, you know, we're well, fine, whatever? But you know, it doesn't really affect us day to day. Um, I think if you go back to last summer, like the Olympics, the mood was really lifted. You know, everyone was was like in very high spirits, you know, gathering in malls, watching events. Um, it was all very sort of public and shared and convivial. Um, you know, the, the way the athletes were greeted when they came back, like this was all a great success and something for people to, you know, revel in and that going on from that, we would build from it was the view. Um, I think some of that has been lost in the months that followed for a number of reasons, you know, COVID being the, the biggest of them, right? Hong Kong has had its, its fair share of uh, measures that have prevented things and sport has paid a heavier price than, you know, a lot of other elements of society. Um, it's only recently that, you know, we, we were allowed to go back out to sports venues um, and then take masks off while using them, you know, um, that has been late. So there was a great sort of groundswell in support for Hong Kong and the, the, the athletes and, you know, the teams that the athletes represented. And I think that stalled a bit because it wasn't really possible to build on, you know, there, there weren't people running around the streets or, you know, filling up the sports centres or like all of that had to stop because of COVID. Um, that's easing up again now. And it's interesting that, you know, the, uh, the AFC team will be celebrated at a public event um, in a shopping mall, I think this weekend. There seems to be a positive mood around it. But until you get like the Hong Kong Premier League back in and allowing fans in week in, week out, and then people playing, it's hard to gauge how much, you know, for example, the football, it's hard to gauge how much like support that has gained. Because it is, it's a weird moment. It's like constantly everything's on pause for you don't know how long. With the AFC team, like how many people would normally be at the stadium? Yeah, the Hong Kong representative football team has been um, more popular than ever, arguably, in recent years. And that's because, um, you know, it's somewhere that like-minded people, shall we say, could go and put on their Hong Kong shirts and wave their Hong Kong flags and maybe get the opportunity to uh, express their feelings towards certain anthems that may be played. Um, so the football, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the football was massively popular. Um, like, depending on where the games were, you know. So obviously, Hong Kong played Big Brother a couple of times in previous World Cup qualifying. Um, those games were very exciting, um, well attended. So it depends if they're playing at Mong Kok. The capacity's about six thousand uh, at the very most. Usually, they get you know. Four is a very big crowd in there when it's not the, the representative team. Um, and you get that for certain local football matches. Hong Kong Stadium, which is where the Rugby Sevens are, and that gets 40,000 for the Rugby Sevens, or did back when they were a going concern. That would get, I think it got like 17 once for uh, Kitchy's first game in the AFC Champions League when Diego Forlan was here, um, definitely earning his crust. Um, and then it would get at least 10, 12... Um, for the representative team. 
But again, when Hong Kong were playing home matches in those qualifiers, um, it was either the social unrest of the protests and it was like a lot of that was filtering into the, the football stadium and the police presence was very high and it seems like there were some limitations on tickets and not everyone wanted to go and be in a crowd there. And then COVID just, just completely disrupted anything. So it'll be very interesting to see when Hong Kong get to play a home game again. Even pre-COVID, it was interesting to think what would happen at the next home game because they've been very vocal or very silent depending on the circumstances TBD, what it'll be next time, but it'd been very well supported, the men's football team. Is there an actual date, though, for, for, for a home game? When will we see that again? I think there's confusion right now because the next big thing is the middle of July is the EAFFE-1 football finals championships. I, I think I've got all <laughs> of that in there. Um, Rolls off the tongue. I mean, really does. Yeah, it's uh, it's very much a case of you know add more words to make it seem more important. Um, that that's taking place in the middle of the summer, and then there should be you know there's that one other international window before the Qatar World Cup, I think. Um, so it depends what they get there, but they won't have qualifiers for anything. So it'll be friendly matches. Um, and obviously, right now, quarantine has been a huge factor that has, has prevented anything really happen in the city. Um, and until that changes, you know, it's more likely the team will travel out and then potentially play two matches somewhere else than convince another team to come in. Um, but even, even like that AFC team, they've not all come back because some of them tested positive. They flew from India having tested negative and then wherever they landed next, I think it might have been the UAE, they were testing positives. So some of them were held back. And it's that kind of chaos. Like the, the women's team had a similar predicament when they went for their AFC and World Cup qualifiers. Um, the, you know, half the time they don't know where they're going because obviously different countries' restrictions and then spikes in cases, things are getting moved around. It, it just seems a logistical nightmare for the team to get anything organized, which puts this AFC qualification, I think, into even more context. Do you, uh, are there, is there like a, a small group of Hong Kong, you know, ultras or whatever you want to call it? Like, like obviously, next, next summer, a year from now, we're still waiting on where the relocated Asian Cup's going to be. But with Hong Kong qualifying for the first time in, you know, 50-something years, do you expect a small band of, of the hardcore fans to travel, you know? Um, wherever it may be, or is that unrealistic? Most definitely, yeah. I think that's entirely realistic. You know, the, the football fans here are very passionate. Um, some of them are very passionate about football that, you know, a lot of other people will turn their noses up at um, for the domestic game. You know, going week in, week out and being part of either the kitschy blue wave or, you know, the Lee Man Ultras or whatever else it is. Um, you know, there's some very vocal support, very committed, and that extends to the, the national team or the representative team. Um, and yeah, people are talking about going, um, even sort of fair weather fans. Um, there's been a lot of people asking me, oh, where, where's this? I've just Googled it. It says it's not in China. No, it's not in China. Um, where is it? <laughs> well, well, we'll find out where it is. Um, it could be South Korea or it could be Japan. You know, there's a yeah. lot, lot of options it could be. And they're like, oh, right, great. Well, I'll go there on my summer holidays. So I think there'll probably be 
you know, depending on where it is, there'll probably be a bit more support for Hong Kong. Um, you know, if it's in the summer and there's people on holiday and they, they can go and travel, um, taking, what, a couple of South Korean cities or a little bit of Japan, I think Hong Kong will do even better out of that than it normally would. Because the, the last tournament was the aforementioned EAF uh, E-1, um, which was in <laughs> South Korea in, what was that, 2019? I think it was 2019, but it was that December, and, you know, it was brutally cold, and still there were, you know, a handful of hardcore Hong Kong fans who went to cheer the team on. Um, so if you get an actual summer vacation out of it, I think there'll be decent numbers. Um, they won't compare to a lot of the other teams, of course, but, you know, they'll be, they'll be vocal and very supportive. You know, listen, a, a, week, a week away at Jeju or Tokyo or Seoul, I mean, that sounds fantastic. You, you mentioned being in uh, the mainland earlier on and, and how, you know, some of the differences that you saw here in terms of, you know, a lot of kids actually playing sports in Hong Kong, where, whereas you didn't really see that here on the mainland. Wondering just as a journalist, what, what are some of the differences that you've noticed from covering sports here in China or in mainland China and uh, covering sports in Hong Kong? Or are there any? Uh, the scale of the events in Hong Kong is often much, yeah. much smaller. And with that, sort of the ease of access and things tends to, um, the, the barrier drops a little bit. So Hong Kong, they're usually a little more pleased to see you. Um, but it depends on the event. Like, you know, covering stuff in the mainland is often difficult, even when you've got the right accreditation and everything. Mark will know better than me, but, um, like, it, it's always... Like, I remember going to the NHL in Shenzhen. Big event, even though it was meant to sort of have US access, which is, you know, way different than we'd expect in Europe for journalists. It just seems like, you know, everyone's... a bit more concerned with nothing going wrong rather than like giving you access to players or anything like that. It's more no than sure what you want. Um, like I actually, I got to interview Brad Marchand at the, uh, the NHL and that was because his former school teacher had got in touch with me and said, oh, I'm going and I'll, I'll get you a, a sit down with him. And I was like, okay, great. Um, but that was like, completely at odds with what was already you know it's a well-run event don't get me wrong no no criticism there but like the, sort of the the media access to it like the Paris Saint-Germain thing again uh, in Shenzhen which seems to be the host of a lot of these things similar like you, you're very far away from from the action even when you're accredited and it seems like it's a bit of a you know it's a bit of a nuisance for a lot of these teams being in China. And, you know, it's slightly different when you get something like an international event where people are there for rankings points. Like most of the stuff that happens in China in that regard with international teams is usually it's sort of pre-season stuff. They're not all receptive to a lot of the things you'd want. And I think that comes across. Uh, in Hong Kong, like when Manchester City were here for, the, I think they were the last team to do pre-season. Um, back when such things were, you know, still carrying on. The access was great in Hong Kong. They were really, really, really pro that. I don't know if it was the same when they were in China, but that felt very different to me, that they were sort of seeking access. There was press conferences with Guardiola and Raheem Sterling sat up there. 
I mean, it's interesting what you say there in terms of, you know, the, the ease of access um, in, you know, mainland versus Hong Kong. And, and, and for me, it kind of, it, it all goes back to the role of the media. You know, in China, in the mainland, it's journalists that are basically PR for, for an event and international journalists, you know, they, they operate differently. They want to actually ask some questions and, and kind of tell some interesting stories. And that might be negative just as much as it is positive. Um, and that's obviously seen as a nuisance. Um, you know, so so it's kind of like why risk anything uh, by organizing anything? And and it's also sort of chain of command there. It's it's like you know the person who's who's dealing with with you know the media section is is sort of many rungs down from the top. And and what is the benefit for them arranging an interview that may or may not go well? Um, you know, and, and it is frustrating. Um, it is frustrating for 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 those of us who are basically trying to promote the wider Chinese sports ecosystem and, and industry, you know, and, and basically just seen as, as an annoyance. I remember a, I remember a story when um, Cedric Bakambu was joining Beijing Goan, and, and you'll probably remember this, Jonathan. Um, and it was just after this, this, this transfer tax had been uh, brought in to, to Chinese football. And so basically they were trying to find some loophole where they didn't have to basically pay double the fee. And it was, it was you know, a lot of money. And basically, it looked like he had kind of bought himself out. Some third party had bought himself out, and then he could then sign quote as a as a free agent. It, it was clearly trying to circumvent the, the the rules, whether legally he had a case or not. It was clearly against the spirit of the rules. And no one, no one in Chinese media was asking questions. And I, I was, I was, I reached out to a few Chinese journalists, and and maybe I was, I was a bit naive. I was sort of saying like, why is why is no one talking about this? Like, why are we not like basically saying like. This is an obvious, just fast, like whether or not you believe that the transfer tax is a good thing or not, like they're clearly trying to get around it on all sides. Uh, and then the CFA basically kind of covered it up and said, well, the tax has been paid, but we're not going to tell you how much. It was all just kind of brushed under the carpet. And the response widely was just, well, look, we can't, we can't even bother to report on this because then we'll just get blocked from covering the club in the future. We'll never get any access to, to the CFL, to uh, CSL, to the Chinese Super League, to Beijing Guan. You know, so it's like, we're not even going to begin to ask these questions because there's just no point. I was like, ah, it's so frustrating. But, you know, one of the challenges, I guess. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, for, former colleagues of mine say pretty much the same thing. And, you know, you get hold of, uh, like, the, the, whoever's in charge of press, a Chinese sports team, and they're very much like, what do you want? Like, come on. And like you say, even if generally you are trying to do something positive and promote Chinese sport overseas, which is largely, you know, I think what foreign journalists who've spent any time in China do rather than just looking for, you know, grubby stories that will do really well online. Um, that doesn't really help because everyone's short term thinking is, I don't want to deal with my boss on this. Um, any yeah. coverage is bad. Like PR generally um, seems to be no coverage is the best kind of coverage for my sports organization. Um, and there's, there's not many uh, in China that sort of breach that. Um, you know, journalists yeah. are a nuisance unless it's an event where everyone's had their travel expenses handed to them in an envelope and then, you know, great coverage for everyone. <laughs> It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's like, why do they have PR people? Just, just don't have that role. 
if they're not going to do anything and they just say, sorry, we can't organize anything because we don't have a handler. Well, is it because, <laughs> you know, but is it because it's point? not run in terms of gate receipts? I mean, they, they have these big patrons and, you know, the, the fortunes of the club rise and fall based on, you know, how well Evergrande is doing. It's, it has nothing to do with how many supporters they have. So what is the point? Why even reach out to the fans? It's, it's probably a fair point. And you, you're right, they do operate in a completely different way. And that's why, you know, by and large, I think it's fair to say that fan engagement is not a priority within Chinese sport. Um, you know, consumer engagement, that's probably a different thing and something that everyone's very keen on. But fan engagement itself, you know, there are exceptions. Some of the people who go and watch the CSL, or at least when they could, will tell you that, you know, their, their clubs are quite good and reach out and sort out tickets and get them to sit together and things like that. But by and large, you know, it's not about building a fan base. Um, it's not about getting people excited or involved. Um, it's staying out the press, keeping your nose clean, um, and then hoping that your uh, your owning company does all right and will continue to uh, keep funding but you. That, but isn't that like... It's just that's how it seems to me too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's you know, I was at a talk a, a few months ago, maybe it was a year ago, we were talking about censorship in China and somebody mentioned, we were talking about the arts in China and somebody, somebody mentioned a concept I'd never heard of called the anaconda and the chandelier. And that's, you know, that's censorship. And that's what's preventing a lot of art from being exported outside of China because like it's it really, you know, it's, it's this limiting factor uh, for a lot of artists, right? If you can't say what you want to say, if you can't do what you want to do, no one's going to take you seriously outside of China. Now, it sort of seems like, I, I don't know, maybe this is a labored uh, uh, similarity, but I mean, it sounds like that's kind of like what the problem is with sport. If you if you have all these like weird artificial limitations, and part of that is this PR thing. Part of this is like not allowing you know, legitimate criticism of, of these leagues and of these sports, then how could you possibly have success outside of China? It just doesn't make sense to me. I think, yeah, the, the culture is certainly among the media is one of self-censorship. Um, that's fairly evident that, you know, it's very rare for Chinese journalists to want to stick their head up above the parapet. Um, and even, I, you know, I remember going to like, the, the snooker years ago, probably 2008, 2009 in Shanghai. And you'd get a press conference um, and no one would even ask any questions. They're like, well, <laughs> I'm not even getting anything out of this. So, like, it's sort of, you know, self-fulfilling. Um, I think an interesting example would be the CSL, you know, 2016, when the world was looking at it, when it was making, you know, sort of world not record, but certainly up there, Asian record bids, top 10 in the world for, for the players. Um, it was an ideal opportunity for what were big companies that owned it in the CSL and the CFA to say, right, well, we're making a global product here. This is something we want to push. Okay, it ended up on Sky Sports for a season, maybe two. But it wasn't really pushed. There was no sort of push like the same way that the J-League has done or the K-League like reaching out in, into English, you know, maybe into Spanish as well. Where are the markets you want to do? Like the Portuguese, there was a lot of Brazilian players coming. There was opportunities. There was certainly journalistic interest. There was, you know, consumer and fan interest in these overseas markets. And the answer was, let's not push it at all. You know, maybe if we ignore them, they'll ignore us. 
and I think there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of that with all sort of sports in China, and there's probably some confusion, you know, when these overseas sporting bodies come in as to exactly how this is going to work and what's going to happen, and I you know I can't imagine that they're ever completely um, prepared for how it's going to go when they get to China. So, Jonathan, before we let you go, like, like what are some of the best stories that you've covered or, or maybe the best memories that you have from behind the scenes of covering sports in, in China? And, and I know you went to the World Cup in Brazil, uh, you know, like, like just from your time in this part of the world over the last decade or so, you know, what, what are some of the highlights as, as you look back? One of the biggest highlights was actually uh, before I started doing this full time, which was back in the Olympics uh, in Beijing in 2008. Um, like the town was very different. I think that was, you know, you talk of an Olympics legacy, like never mind the legacy. During the Olympics itself, I thought Beijing was a buzz. Um, like it felt like a completely different place. It felt like, you know, a global city. Everyone was in a great mood. Um, you know, it was quite interesting how many tickets some of the uh, grandparents outside had to sell. Um, but, you know, everyone seemed to be interested, even if it was just to get their little money from selling tickets to the uh, the javelin or whatever they had. Um, but I remember being out in Sanditon um, and we bumped into John Drummond. Um, right. And he was like, my friend was like, oh, you know, I've just run a marathon. He's like, you're an idiot. You know, the first fellow who did that died. And I thought, this guy's all right. And then he was like, let's have a race. <laughs> luckily, luckily, he wouldn't race us around the back streets. But it was that, that moment, you know, when, when the Beijing Olympics was meant to be seen as sort of China's coming out party to the world, as it was, you know, so often billed, it really did feel like that. Yeah. And that, I thought, was, you know, probably one of the most interesting times, like even, you know, just going and seeing some of them Paralympic stuff, like the murder ball live, that was absolutely wild and really eye-opening. Since then, you know, I think there's a lot of things happened for good or bad. Um, I'm not sure my memory remembers all of them, but um, yeah, the, the Beijing Olympics sticks with me and I think it will for a long time. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, get hold of me on Twitter, at JMA White always available so yeah reach out there great and then we will put that on our show notes for sure thank you so much for coming on and i hope we can uh, talk again sometime thanks for having me on it's a pleasure chaps great to chat thanks jonathan thank you to jonathan white that was a lot of fun uh summer's coming up that means a little bit of travel what does that mean for the show mark well, we're both going to be kind of crisscrossing over various parts of the world, potentially meeting on the other side of the planet. I'm very excited about that. I know. Um, but yes, we're going to have a few interviews coming up, uh, perhaps not quite on a weekly basis, but we will uh, keep providing you with uh, bringing you as many interviews as we can over the next uh, few weeks and hopefully uh, resume normal uh, service as soon as possible. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to the summer. I hope you're looking forward to the summer. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>